Welcome to the Report Card with Pat Malthus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. If you did a side-by-side of the education platforms of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, what might fit in the middle of that Venn diagram? Well, for many folks, the first thing that comes to mind is charter schools. Indeed, for years, charter schools were in the unusual position of having supporters on the right and the left. But as politics have grown more and more divisive, that bipartisan support has largely faded away. Indeed, if you were going to draw a Venn diagram of the 2020 Democratic candidates' education agendas not supporting charter schools would fit squarely in the middle, with just a few exceptions. Now, what's more, some advocates worry that Republicans are starting to distance themselves from the charter sector as well. On this episode, I talk with Connor Williams and Scott Pearson about the shifting political landscape around charter schooling. Connor Williams is a fellow at the Century Foundation, where he writes about education, immigration, early education, school choice, and work-life balance. He's the author of several recent op-eds about the charter sector. Scott Pearson is the executive director at the D.C. Public Charter School Board. Previously, Scott served in the Obama administration as the deputy of the Office of Innovation and Improvement for the U.S. Department of Education, and he also co-founded a network of college prep charter schools in the San Francisco Bay Area. Connor, Scott, thanks for coming on the report card. That's great to be here. Glad to be here. So before we get to the heart of today's topic, I want to take a minute to just do a little Charter Schools 101. Scott, for those that might not be familiar, can you give an overview to listeners about what charters are? Are they public or private? How long have they been around? And who attends them? Charter schools were started about 25 years ago, and it was a concept to bring innovation, competition, and choice to the public school sector. So charter schools are referred to as public charter schools because they're public. Public means that they are tuition-free, they're open to all who apply, there's no selectivity, and they are accountable for results. They're public schools. What makes them different is that rather than being run by the government, they are typically run by independent nonprofit organizations. So as a nonprofit, you form yourself, you launch a school, and before you can launch that school, you need to apply to what's called a charter school authorizer for permission. And if if they believe that you have a strong application, then you are granted a charter to operate a public school, and you are then reimbursed by the, the government for serving students. Charter schools typically have far more freedom than a traditional public school freedom over their budgets, freedom over their hiring. Most are non-unionized, freedom over their curriculum. In exchange for that, they are typically held to much higher standards of accountability. Charter schools generally commit to achieve certain academic outcomes. And if they don't achieve those, they are closed. And so you have this trade-off between higher autonomy and also higher accountability. Um, So they are public schools, but they are run by private, typically nonprofit organizations. So, Connor, as I mentioned before, you've written several recent pieces for the Wall Street Journal, the Post, 74 million, related to the politics of charters. And you know that charters used to enjoy bipartisan support. Before we address the used to of that statement, I'm wondering how charter advocates built that bipartisan support in the first place. I mean, what was the big draw? And why do you think charters started out as more or less a purple reform? Well, it's a a great question. It's the kind of question that 
could give you a couple of dissertations to answer, but the, the short version is something like this. Charters took a lot of their, their heft intellectually initially from uh, Albert Shanker, who was a, a major union leader. His theory of charter schools was that these would be laboratories for experimentation where teachers would have more control over how the schools were run, where they could innovate and try interesting, innovative things, and then share those, those ideas back to the rest of the traditional district schools, right? That this would be a place where you go and test something out and then you replicate it across systems. Uh, so it had some progressive roots, intellectually speaking. It also, for a variety of reasons, and you know, I, I work at a, a progressive think tank. I'm, I'm not, not as equipped or probably as, it's not as appropriate for me to explain the conservative mind on an AEI podcast, but there were good conservative reasons to be excited about charters too. At, at, at various points, conservatives who care about delivery of government services freed from, uh, you know, quote unquote, stultifying bureaucracies or kludgeocratic, you know, mission creep in how public education runs. There's lots of different priorities that charter schools, which are these sort of free, autonomous uh, campuses to do a, a bunch of different, they can do a bunch of different things that can appeal to a lot of conservative sensibilities. Practically speaking, the fact that many charters are not unionized was also you know, a political advantage for, for conservatives as well, right? That at various stages as charters grew a, a share of the United States public education system, some conservatives really enjoyed the possibility that charters could become not only a competitors to traditional school districts and particular communities, but eventually take over the entire delivery system of public education in some communities where the unionized district schools wouldn't, wouldn't be able to continue to operate. So that's some of it. I mean, there's lots of other pieces that, for instance, one of the, the important parts that often gets lost on the left is that a lot of the early support for charter schools came from civil rights activists who were frustrated by what neighborhood schools they had been assigned forever, right? That uh, after various efforts to, to try desegregation or various efforts to reform struggling schools in communities of color, they were looking for options and charter schools offered them an option within the public system where they could try new things and that they could have uh, access to different kinds of educational opportunities. I, I would just add to that excellent summary that there was also a sense at the time that public schooling was broken. You know, this was right in the aftermath of the Nation at Risk report. And so there was, I think, a widespread belief across the political spectrum that our public schools were not working, that this was a, a risk to the future of our country, a risk to our national security and to our prosperity, and that we needed bold new approaches to try to solve that, that fundamental existential threat. I think that's right. I would add to that, that there's this whole genesis, right? The Nation at Risk report comes out of the Reagan administration in the early 80s. Throughout the 80s, there are a variety of national summits and meetings like the, the National Governors Association met and convened under the first President Bush in Charlottesville, Virginia to discuss the state of public education. This spawned a bunch of different things, test-based accountability and, and increased academic standards. But it also, it fostered this sort of long, maybe even 20, 25 year period where there was a relatively cross-partisan, transpartisan, I don't know what you want to call it, but it, it, there were these factional breakdowns of the party lines on education where guys like George, both George Bushes, and Jeb Bush could be in line with Barack Obama and Bill Clinton on academic standards. And then conservatives like Rick Santorum and the teachers union could be on the other side, less enthusiastic about uh, say the common core standards when they came out. So that meant that charter schools could kind of drive through there, that if there were presidential candidates like Bill Clinton, who were looking for an opportunity to prove that they were part of some governing coalition on education reform, 
charters were an opening to prove their their bona fides as not sort of out and out traditionalists in their party mold. And you know, George W. Bush, similarly around No Child Left Behind, was uh, he, so he's elected in 2000. That's four years after the Republican Party platform in '96 called for the abolition of the Department of Education. Right? George W. Bush presides over the the expansion of of the federal role in education to an enormous degree under No Child Left Behind. That's just to say that that transpartisan political brew charters fit really well in it for a long time. And I would add to that that you know this was a time in the Democratic Party where there was a broad embrace of market-based approaches. And you saw this on both sides of the Atlantic with the election of Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, the Democratic Leadership Council. There was a democratic embrace of using market-based principles to, to achieve public policy solutions. Uh, and that works very well with charter schools that brings the notion of competition and choice into public schools. Uh, and that was something that was easy for Republicans to embrace since that's uh, been a pillar of conservative thinking for a long time. So it seems like if you were to put it in a nutshell, charters cross these political divides and conservatives and progressives might not have liked them for precisely the, the same reasons, but it was an instrument that could bring together this sort of cross-party uniform to move forward on a public education reform. Okay, so if that makes sense, there were a lot of promises. Generally speaking, I know this is contested, but I'm just sort of interested in, from a political point of view, were charters generally viewed as a success or a failure or somewhere in between? in the years after Charlottesville and George Bush's early embrace of charters? I would say, politically speaking, it's heavily contested turf. Empirically speaking, charters have, over time, shown increasingly strong results academically, such that some of the best aggregate research on their performance shows that they outperform peer district schools in, in many communities. That said, a lot of that same research shows that when you look across the United States, the charter sector doesn't perform a whole lot differently from the traditional district school sector. So the important takeaway from that as far as actual analyzed data, the, the, the real empirical uh, narrative that we should be taking here isn't, though, that charters and district schools are just about the same in terms of performance. It's that there are variations in how charters perform, and we actually kind of know what policies you need to help them perform better and dramatically better, right? So to give Scott, I mean, hopefully a perfect Andre to, to, to build on this, DC's charter sector performs dramatically better than the district sector. And that's because there's a strong authorizer, which Scott's headed for many years, that decides which charters get to operate. And once they're operating, has really strong oversight of how they perform. So that strong accountability framework, the solid funding from Washington, D.C., the relatively firm regulation of ensuring that charters are strong performers that fosters better charter performance. If you look at states where there's less regulation, where there's sort of a free-for-all about when charters can open and which ones can open and little oversight to how they're doing, those tend to be the states where charters don't perform very well. So from the context of this conversation, where we're saying there was once a bipartisan reform consensus or something like that around charters, and that seems to have petered out, we wouldn't say that charters underperformed and then people started jumping ship. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that. I mean, look, uh, welcome to democracy. Welcome to political debate where the facts are sort of a corollary participant. They're not the main course. I don't think that at the end of the day, we're, we're arguing about whether or not to have more charter schools, fewer charter schools, which kinds of charter schools and where do we put the charter schools. We're not really debating 
whether they work or not most of the time. We're debating those gaps in the priorities of these different participants in ed reform. So if you're a civil rights advocate who believes in charter schools, you believe in them for a series of reasons. You may or may not care at all about whether they're unionized. You may or may not care at all about any number of different pieces of the policy. You care if they work and give legitimate options to folks from the community that you represent and care about. That may not always make you a great governing partner fit in a coalition that includes conservatives who are primarily motivated to support charters for other reasons. I think it's also fair to say that all the data that Connor cites that shows that charter schools do better with urban students than do traditional public schools, and in certain jurisdictions where charter schools are well-governed, they do better than traditional public schools. I think what is also fair to say is that charter schools did not live up to the highest promises of their founders. I mean, they, they did not they have not revolutionized outcomes. We're not, uh, you know, there was, there was a belief when I first got involved with charter schools that charter schools would erase the effects of poverty and would produce outcomes, both test score outcomes, college going outcomes, college completion outcomes that were on par with, with affluent or middle-class children. And while you could certainly point to individual charter schools that have done that, that has not been the case with the overall charter school movement. And so it has led to, you know, a much more fertile ground for debate over whether charter schools are actually serving students better. I would add, I think that's exactly right. And this is something I almost mentioned earlier. As the reform movement, education reform movement that built out of the 80s and through the 90s, as that really took shape, a lot of its political success came with these enormous promises, like Scott's saying. It wasn't just the charters, too. It was, you know, No Child Left Behind set these audaciously ambitious goals about student achievement. Teach for America, you know, as it launched, right, was this alternative cre- uh, credentialing program for, for young teachers. It promised to close the achievement gap, and it built itself as the civil rights movement of our time. Charter schools were covered that way for some years too, right? A lot of the original charter operators um, that have now become big networks of charter schools operating in communities all over the country made these enormous promises about every kid going to or finishing college, uh, about closing achievement gaps again as well. And they got coverage from, I think, oftentimes really credulous media that, that was looking to tell this really beautiful story about charters as alternatives for, you know, frankly, in quotes, for those kids, those other kids over there. And, you know, a lot of privileged folks who maybe ought to have known better bought it, right? They read these, these profiles in the New Yorker and the New York Times and the Washington Post of hero educators at a charter school saving the day and changing the narrative and flipping the script. And, you know, after those 3,000 words had been read, they sort of forgot about it until finding out a couple of years later that they'd see research or they'd hear some new narrative about charter schools that wasn't quite as rosy or as sunny. And, and I think that a lot of the political backlash that charters took was people who were angry for that kind of feeling duped. There was also, I think we can't deny, there have been you know, many, many examples of bad behavior on the part of individual charter school operators whether it's a charter leader embezzling money or just being paid a very, very high salary. A frequent occurrence that we've seen is, you know, schools using various techniques to essentially skim high-performing students from traditional public schools and then crowing about their great results when, in fact, you know, they were not clearly serving the same population. So those sorts of things, I think, not only ended up undermining some support for charter schools, but they turned supporters of traditional public schools against them. 
you know, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix and a huge charter school supporter for years and years, talks about uh, the valley of death that charter schools have to go through, that you know, when they get started, they're too small for many people to pay attention to. And then they reach a scale where suddenly they are on people's radar screens and the teachers unions or the traditional public schools start opposing them because they're taking students from them. And, and to the extent that they're engaged in bad behavior, that only makes the opposition more virulent. But the charter movement still isn't large enough to effectively defend itself. And then if you can get past that, like we've achieved in DC, where you achieve market share uh, close to 50%. Now you have enough support of political support from regular people because every other person you meet is sending their child to a charter school and hopefully they're happy there, that then you actually reach uh, a political stasis where there's broad support for charter schools to continue. But I think much of the country is going through that valley where they have certainly provoked uh, opposition, but they're struggling to have enough political support to survive that opposition, really. Let me add to that real quick, because I think this is important. On the merits, if you compare issues of financial malfeasance or corruption or, or poor school operations, charters are not uniquely bad actors in public education compared with traditional districts. The problem that charters have, though, is what we were saying a minute ago, right, that they made a bunch of promises about being better, about being these change agents, about being the reform that was going to shift and, and, and change these kinds of problems in public education. And so if there is a graduation rate scandal at a charter school versus yet another one at the district, those aren't treated the same in terms of the public narrative. And I'm not even sure that they should be. But I just want to make sure that it's clear. It's not that charters are uniquely prone to these kinds of, of you know, crimes and corruption. It's just that they've already set themselves up for a higher standard because the whole justification for opening a new school is that it's going to set itself to a higher standard. It's going to be better. I think that's really a challenge for the charter folks is that, it, and also, by the way, it's why these places that have meaningful progressive regulation of their charter sectors get better results because they're better at clamping down on that stuff. Yeah. And I would add that, you know, I talked about how charter schools have been accused of skimming students. Well, traditional public schools do that in the open with magnet schools. But again, to Connor's point, you know, charter schools promised that they would be something different, that they would serve every student and that they would achieve extraordinary results. And that hasn't happened enough to, to build overwhelming public support for the movement. Well, in some sense, I would offer that charter schools are a pretty profound success story, moving in a few decades to a pretty good chunk, uh, you know, about 6% of public schools are, are charters. That's that's dramatic. And they have put up some strong numbers, but I really like the uh, valley of death analogy, Scott. It's a political question. As they grow in profile, they attract more uh, attention from competitors. And we've certainly seen that now, uh, as Connor said, I actually want to move on to that main dish, which is the politics. So let's take it from both sides of the political coin. Back in 2008, Charters were still considered to be a cornerstone of the Democratic education agenda. Folks like Barack Obama and Cory Booker were big proponents, uh, standard bearers for charters, and their promise, some of those promises were really big and bold. But in the 2020 campaign, we've heard many Democratic politicians singing a markedly different tune. Uh, Connor, what happened? A lot happened. To their credit, to their blame, however you want to frame it, the Obama administration and his secretaries of education, Arne Duncan and, and, and John King, 
pushed really hard on education reform. They pulled every lever they could to go as quickly as they could towards a bunch of different education reform priorities. These were things like not only the ongoing development, but the adoption of the the common core state standards across the country. These were state developed and and state designed and state chosen, but the Obama administration put a lot of incentives in place to help encourage states to join. It was the same with charter schools. They pushed really hard. And there's, I think, a, a pretty strong case to be made that the cost for all of the things that they got done on education was some snapback politically, right? That they governed very much independently of their their supporting coalition. And so the teachers unions absolutely were frustrated with the Obama administration with a bunch of their priorities, including and and maybe particularly charter schools. And I think the base of the Democratic Party is activated in a way that is, is pretty oppositional to charters right now. But beyond the sort of party level thing, the other thing that's happened is a shift in the demographics of American families, I think. So, you know, I mentioned this before, once upon a time, charters were a thing that people would read about in the New Yorker, or they'd see these slick documentaries uh, about havens of opportunity away from failing neighborhood schools or dropout factories or whatever the the parlance was in that particular year. Charters were going to save the day, and there'd be these like hard-charging young educators working in these schools, promising that they were going to get every kid to college and make no excuses for poverty or for other pressures these kids faced. And it was easy to sit in Bethesda or Westchester or, you know, Silver Lake or, you know, in the nicer parts of um, American metropolitan areas and think, oh, well, that's great. That's so wonderful that these kids are getting an opportunity. Charters seem just swell. But the problem is now over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen also this shift in the demographics where because of the regionalization of economic opportunity in the United States, metro areas are just booming with young families. There's, there's a whole argument to be had about why exactly it's happening, but, but my take on it is the upward mobility data in the United States suggests that the places where young families can go to get the incomes they need to pay down student debt and to be near dynamic labor markets are all in these big and growingly expensive cities. So that meant that all of a sudden, a lot of the privileged, sometimes right, sometimes left, but generally sort of center-left progressive families that used to be out in these suburbs or out in, in other communities, seeing charters as schools for other families, other people. Now they're, they're seeing them down the road in the neighborhoods near where they live and wondering whether they can get access, whether or not they want access, whether or not the fact that other folks in their community are sending kids to charters means something for the neighborhood school. And so all of a sudden, charters, I think, are hitting a lot more of the, their old sort of demographic supporters in a more personal and self-interested way. And I think that's been a real risk for them. Let me ask a follow-up. You're sort of talking maybe about the demography of charters, but how about the democratic coalition? You know, we have this traditional democratic coalition that for a while was at least led by some folks to, to push the party for charters. Are there particular parts of that coalition that have really lost their affinity for charters? And are there others that have sort of remained more supportive or is it more uniform within the party? I think it's tempting to see it as an argument between the civil rights community and the teachers unions within the democratic coalition, where the unions have been more skeptical of charters, the civil rights community has not been, and that the civil rights community has lost ground and the unions are ascendant now after some period where it was the opposite. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that's the case. I don't think that's why the governing elites in the democratic party are operating differently. My theory of the case is that it's more an accident of history if you look at the last decade or so, which is that Barack Obama didn't get elected in 2008 because he was a supporter of education reform. 
he got elected because of positions on the Iraq war, positions on the coming faltering economy, just a whole host of other things. But that meant that when he was elected, he had a fair amount of freedom to operate however he wanted, knowing that all the members of his coalition had nowhere else to go. There wasn't as though the teachers unions were going to swing their support to Mitt Romney in 2012 because they were dissatisfied about how Arnie Duncan was governing as secretary of education. They could make some noise about how they didn't like it, but they were still going to back Barack Obama. I would take that a step further and say that, you know, when Barack Obama was running for president, the teachers union was 150 percent behind Hillary Clinton. And so he was elected. He was um, nominated by the Democratic Party without the traditional sense of obligation to the teachers unions that many, I would say, even most Democratic politicians have. So that's interesting, Scott. To take that line is sort of the theory that, at least on education, Barack Obama ran to the right of the party and was popular enough to pull them that direction. I wonder about what you're seeing on the ground. I mean, granted, you spend most of your time in D.C., but you have a good view on charter, uh, the charter landscape. Does the decreasing support for charters among prominent Democratic politicians match what you're seeing on the ground? Are charters seeing a broad-based drop-off in support from communities that often lean left? I think they have, the, and, and I think a big reason is Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos. You know, they have brought a level of polarization to an issue that has historically been a centrist bipartisan issue. And it's very, very difficult to be a centrist these days. And, you know, you combine that with the fact that opposition to charter schools has become an article of faith among progressive Democrats. I would argue that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't on their radar screen. They were focused on other things. And so in a nomination contest where you know, you're trying to appeal to the party's base and the party's base is not going to support anything that Donald Trump supports. It's, it's become much more difficult. And it's, you know, almost a miracle that a relative centrist like Joe Biden uh, made it through that process. You know, but Joe Biden is only a centrist in the, I guess, in the current dynamics. I mean, he was pretty, pretty far to the left. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are in the Obama administration and you know, he was one of the people on the left. He was, he was very supportive of the teachers union and, and of more liberal policies than probably emerged from the Obama administration. But in this particular context at this time, he is among the more centrist Democrats who, who are out there. And, and he is now the party standard bearer. Well, Scott, you sort of opened the door to talking about the Republicans. So let's shift to that side. Uh, now, generally, Republicans have continued to support charters even when Democrats sought to distance themselves from the sector. But back in February, a lot of people noticed when the Trump administration proposed cutting funding to the federal charter schools program. And some took that as a sign that, well, maybe some Republicans might start to jump ship as well. Do you think that argument holds water? I mean, are Republicans abandoning the charter sector? I do not think that Republicans are abandoning the charter sector. And certainly when you look state by state at which states continue to be very supportive of public charter schools, they tend to be red states. My interpretation of what happened with the federal charter schools program proposal was that it represented an even higher value in the Republican Party, which was to give states tremendous flexibility over how they spent their money. And so the charter schools program was lumped in with a lot of other programs and, and then proposed to be turned into a block grant to states that 
then the state governors could choose how to use. And I, I heard some members of the current administration argue that they, they thought that it would actually result in more money to charter schools because of the flexibility given to states. So the narrative that I hear on this is, is, is as Scott suggests, some Republicans, especially at the federal level, don't love dealing with a controversial education policy topic in charter schools that at the end of the day, oftentimes is seen and, and is most effective in urban policy contexts. This is another important thing to note is that it isn't yet clear in my read of the data that we know how to run high quality rural charter schools in a way that's really effective for kids. And this is partly because if you're in a city with several dozen high schools and one more opens, it doesn't necessarily mean that the district is going to crater, right? A new charter school isn't going to end DC public schools anytime soon. But if you're in a town with one high school and a new charter high school opens, that could be a meaningful fracturing of the local education system to such a degree that it might actually bring the district way down in quality or, or entirely down financially. And so a lot of the rural chartering is, is complicated. And that means that in some of these more traditional conservative communities, Charters just aren't a thing. They're not a meaningful education reform solution. So if you're a, a Republican who at least intellectually supports charters, but you're making these choices about ultimately things that are going to matter most for Atlanta, Chicago, D.C., a bunch of progressive blue, very blue cities all over the country, and you're taking all kinds of heat for supporting charter schools, you could think, well, look, this just doesn't actually help my base that much. I'm not picking up any votes this way. Let's just sort of shrug and move on. Now, again, I don't know if that narrative is actually what's going on in the average Republican lawmaker's head. But I know that's the, the theory that people have been advancing, is that there's no reason to take bullets to do anything that might be helping Democratic constituencies anyway. So let's just shrug on this thing and leave the Democrats to fight it out for themselves. I think it's also worth mentioning the, the theory put forward by your colleague, Nat, uh, Rick Hess, you know, which is that he looked at campaign contribution data from major education reform and public charter school organizations and found that you know, they, that, that they were largely pretty left-leaning. And so I don't want to make Rick's argument for him, but, you know, he, he expressed a real concern that if the education reform movement became viewed as largely a left-leaning movement, that it could risk losing support of conservatives. I'm not sure that's come to pass yet, but I think it's, a, it's an interesting argument that we should pay attention to. Yeah, that is an interesting piece, and we'll try and link to it in the show notes. But I'm looking at this, and Connor, what I'm hearing you say is that as an instrument, charters actually sort of lean left. They're better for maybe blue state uh, environs than red state, but the politics tends to lean right, which is something of an interesting contrast. Connor, you have sort of written a, a, a take in the Washington Post and a couple of other places, sort of pushing against that progressive politics that's sort of leaning against charters, saying, hey, there's a real progressive case for supporting charter schools. You're, you know, something of an evangelist for that case. Make your pitch. Yeah, I'm really glad you gave me this chance because one thing that I think I want to distinguish myself from Scott on this is I am not a centrist. I'm not a centrist on any issue. I'm hard left progressive. And so my argument has been that charter schools offer a meaningfully progressive solution to some of the most intransigent and really difficult problems of uh, U.S. public education inequities. And here's why. We don't know for sure, because it's hard to narrow this down in the research, but basically, I think charters do two things that make them more effective than traditional public schools. And by more effective, I mean that raise achievement and that specifically increase access of opportunity for historically underserved populations. So here are the two things. One, charter schools are the only politically feasible way to loosen the grip 
of neighborhood schools and the housing market on access to educational opportunity. And, and let me just translate that jargon. What that means is, if you live in the average American city, there are really nice neighborhoods, really nice ones that are full of very wealthy people, usually white, almost always English dominant, almost always parents are both highly educated. Schools are technically public in these neighborhoods, just like they are technically public in the ring of wealthy suburbs just outside of these cities. Except that the only way to get in, talk about skimming and creaming students, is to purchase a home for $1.7 million next door to Jeff Bezos here in DC or the Kushners uh, or you know the Obamas. The only way to get access to these quote unquote public schools is to buy access to the neighborhoods via the real estate market. There's nothing progressive about that. There's nothing progressive about buying cleaner air or cleaner water according to your real estate. So it shouldn't be that with schools. If you look at though, every progressive effort to do something about this, to impose some sort of busing program, open enrollment program, some way to make sure that kids who don't live or can't live, don't have, can't afford to live in those neighborhoods, those really high-performing, high-quality, highly-resourced, extremely wealthy schools, it turns out that the folks in those neighborhoods won't let you do it, right? So in, this, in DC, this happens all the time. I, I, when I first had kids, that is when it really radicalized me about this. If you talk to these wealthy, almost always white, usually progressive folks who live in these nice neighborhood schools, uh, attendance zones, and you say, hey, would you guys be okay with maybe like reserving 10%, 15%, 20% of the seats at your school for quote unquote at-risk children or kids who fall uh, below the poverty line, their families are below the poverty line? They go, oh, no, no, not that. You say, well, would you be okay with maybe some busing programs that spread around uh, access to different schools around the city? No. Open enrollment? No. Uh, would you be okay with maybe building some affordable housing units down the road from where you live? No. Would you be okay with, how about some public housing right in your neighborhood? No. And so you start to find out that it turns out there's nothing they're willing to do to de-link that iron uh, hold that they have on access to a school based on their ability to pay for it. Now, these are public schools. So charters are, are the only politically feasible way that I've seen in most cities to get something like open enrollment on the table. The second thing that charters do that I think it makes them uniquely progressive is that they allow for a coherent school design. And I, I'm a former teacher, and now I'm a parent of two kids who are at a Title I school here in DC, Title I charter school, and a third kid who will eventually be at that same school. What I know about how schools operate is that they're frequently stuck with these mandates from the school district or from above that mess up their efforts to try to put together a school model that makes sense. So in DC, I, I focus a lot on English language learners. If you talk to folks who work in district dual language immersion programs, they're trying to teach in Spanish and in English or, or in, in another language and in English, they all the time get the curriculum switched on them, right? To a new curriculum that isn't translated, or they get some new module they're supposed to teach in DC, right? It's supposed to teach everyone how to ride a bike in second grade. In these programs that are carefully crafted and put together really, really tightly scheduled to make sure that the languages are balanced correctly and that they're swinging back and forth between the two languages by subject or by minutes or by hour, that kind of like willy-nilly mandate doesn't work. School leaders need the opportunity to actually design a school and staff a school and build a schedule and assign a curricula that actually works relatively coherently. So my, my take on this has always been, if school districts are willing to do that, to let school leaders have that kind of autonomy and if school districts are willing to open up enrollment so that neighborhood purchasing power doesn't determine who gets to go to what school. I don't think I need charters personally as a progressive. But in the meantime, millions of kids get up and go to school every day. Now they do it online, but most of the time they get up and walk off to their schools, they get bussed off to their schools. We can't wait and say, well, we can't, we can't do anything about this because busing is too hard, because housing policy is too hard, because all these other things are too hard. 
charters are the one option we've got right now. So I think that as a governing matter, it makes them a really viable progressive solution. Amen. I think that the main challenge to that is that they involve a bunch of solutions that have been labeled as neoliberal. They're, you know, using non-governmental organizations to deliver governmental services, and they typically don't involve teachers unions. And so right now, in this moment of sort of a fevered, polarized politics, those things are hard to get over. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, that raises the key question. I mean, if we've seen sort of this crumbling support for charters, is there a way to rebuild bipartisan support, the kind that they once enjoyed? Is there a way to bring Democrats back into the fold without losing what might be wavering Republican support? Or do you think that it's just that charter support might be a long-term victim of today's polarization? I believe that, first of all, the education landscape is defined by an embrace of the status quo. Whatever it is, people want to keep it that way. I mean, I've seen this happen time and time again. People oppose a charter school, they oppose a charter school, then it opens in a neighborhood. And then five years later, 10 years later, if that school isn't going well and you try to close it, the very same people who oppose that school opening are now opposing its closing. And so whatever we have now, I expect, I think the best bet is that it will continue. And so I don't think we're going to see charter schools go away. The question is, where will they continue to grow and expand? And there, I think you're going to see it state by state. I mean, we still have many states that are very charter friendly. They tend to be red states. Ultimately, the long-term support for charter schools is going to be based on their performance. And, and so it's absolutely critical for the charter school movement to perform and deliver because in the long run, just like in the stock market, the stock market goes up and down, but at the end of the day, the performance of a company's stock is going to depend on its underlying performance. With charter schools, I believe in the long run, it's the same thing. If they deliver outsized results for everyday kids, there will be support for them. Connor, I'm curious, as you've made this case very publicly, well, a progressive case for supporting charters, how's it been received? And do you feel like you have a good vantage on how that may or may not play in uh, progressive circles more broadly? I get yelled at a lot on the internet. <laughs> I, I mean, it's not the worst. I mean, it, for whatever reason, making progressives super angry at me, it has not yet incited any death threats. You know, I, I used to write about a variety of other issues, gun control, criminal justice reform, and, and, uh, and those got me death threats. But, but this, it, it's, it gets me intensely angry pushback from a lot of progressives. Now, as anybody who writes for a living on the internet can tell you, you have to be careful reading the tea leaves of the country politically based on Twitter, right? Preach. Well, right. As it turns out, right, the average person on the internet is not the same as the average American voter. So what I would say is my read of where we're going on this politically is I actually think, like Scott said, I don't think the Republican support of charters is going to go real strongly in any direction. It'll kind of muddle along it, it, again, partly because charters have not historically grown in the districts and cities where conservatives count on votes. So they just, that's not yet been a thing that, that determines their politics. What I think is, is an interesting next move for the charters is two things. While most charters are not unionized, you know, some are. The largest uh, uh, 
Charter Network in Chicago, I believe, the Acero Network is unionized. Uh, the Green Dot Charter Schools out in California have been unionized for, for decades. So I think it would be interesting for progressives who support charters, for reformers who support charters to continue to plumb that. Like, is there a way to retain some of the advantages, the open enrollment of charter schools, the school autonomy and the coherent school models of charter schools? Can you make that compatible with collective bargaining and teachers unions in more cases? We know it's doable. Just the question is, can we make it more broadly doable in more settings so that progressives don't have to feel like they choose between charter schools or supportive unions? The other thing gets to the other thing that I love about, about charters, right? Charters need to be even more experimental about the pedagogies that they use. One way to shore up the far left support is to give them the pedagogies they care about, give them more Emilia Reggio, give them more dual language immersion, open more charters that are expeditionary and outdoor learning based, right? Try to appeal to progressive sensibilities. Part of the other thing that's happened here is a lot of charters who made the big promises up front in the early years of the charter movement looked an awful lot like urban Catholic high schools from the 1950s, right? They were extremely regimented in their discipline, very traditional pedagogy, and progressives, they're going to struggle with that. Scott, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the current coronavirus pandemic. How are D.C.'s charter schools faring? And uh, you know, just more broadly, might there be a greater appreciation for the sorts of flexibility that charters can provide in the midst of this pandemic? So the short answer is D.C. charters are faring very well. We at the authorizer of the D.C. Public Charter School Board set the expectation right at the beginning that schools would stay in operation, that they would serve all of their students remotely, and that they would make sure that all of their students had access to devices. And so our schools have really stepped up. They've made sure that students are connected with devices and are delivering quality education in many, many different ways. I, I think Connor would be a good person to comment on that because he has two children in a public charter school who are experiencing that. But the one thing I, I will say about it is that I believe very strongly from the start of this pandemic that how charter schools responded would have a big impact in how they were viewed on the other side of this pandemic. Did they step up and deliver quality education? Oftentimes where maybe traditional school districts were not, it hasn't been the case in DC. We, our traditional school district has, has done a very fine job, but would they step up and deliver? Would they collaborate and be part of the system where that made sense on critical matters of health and safety of students? Would they innovate and show new ways to continue to serve students through this pandemic? And, and if they did all of those things well, it's been my belief that they will emerge from the pandemic politically stronger. And if they don't do those things well, I think it will, it, it could hurt them for many, many years to come. Yeah, I think that's right. Both it's right that my kids' charter school has been really quick and responsive and done a nice job. And I also think that Scott's right about the, the politics, that charters, one of the interesting challenges charters have is that the price, right, of all of that school autonomy and all that flexibility is much less support from a big public system behind them, right? Which means that when things like this happen, when huge crises arise, that it's not like the charters can call the district snowplow people and have them just come and take care of the blizzard in their, in their parking lot. They can't just call the district IT office and say, okay, you know, we need some emergency uh, devices set up. They have all this, that nimble ability, but they have to have been prepared just logistically and as an operations perspective to actually be resilient. 
in the face of something like that without the benefit of a huge network of, of support behind them. And I, I've been really impressed with how they've done that and how they've navigated that here in DC. My kids, I was saying before the call, I mean, I mean, I think like every campus, my kids' school threw something together for the first week and it was, it was buggy and there were some challenges, but of course they had, you know, 72 hours or so to plan it. It was, it was sudden. Every single week it's gotten better. There's been a significant improvement in terms of the content of, of what the teachers are delivering online. There's clearly a ton of thought put into how they can engage kids more equitably and make sure that all kids are, are actually getting something out of, of what's happening online. So I've been really impressed. The other thing is that we are being exposed to all manner of new teaching styles, new ways of delivering education, and schools that are good and that have flexibility are going to be able to adapt themselves. And that could also be a huge advantage for public charter schools. I was speaking with a school leader earlier today who runs a network of schools, and, and they surveyed their parents at one of their lowest income schools. So roughly 70% of the students at their school receive some form of public benefits. Out of 360 students, these are middle school students, they asked them, did you prefer in person or did you prefer online? Half of them said that they preferred the online delivery of instruction, which was a stunning amount. They said that they missed their friends, they wanted to get back together with their friends, but in terms of online delivery of instruction, it was working better for them because they were getting more personalized attention, there were not distractions. The teacher was able to respond to their written work as opposed to responding to who was talking in the class. They felt more confident taking risks. And so schools, um, they are going to have the nimbleness and the flexibility to respond to that. And my guess is, is that when we're on the other side of this pandemic, they are gonna offer for their students some options that work for them. And it may be more difficult for some traditional public school districts to make that pivot. Well, there, certainly with coronavirus and with the politics of the day, there's a lot of uncertainty. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question, and you just give me your best answer. 20 years from now, where will charters be because of, in spite of, the current political leanings toward them? Scott, I'll give you first crack at predicting the future. I expect that there will be more public charter schools than we have today but that we won't have seen the same rate of growth. I think we'll see more diversity of public charter schools. I am very concerned. We haven't talked about it much on this podcast, but I am very concerned about the death of accountability, which has always been one of the core pillars of public charter schools. And so I think we will have more public charter schools. I'm not sure that they will be held to the same standards if we can't get real accountability back. Connor, 20 years from now, where are charters? One of the nice things, I think, about having a strong empirical basis to advance a policy is that the politics can shift around a lot. But as Scott said earlier, if charters are working, it's going to be really hard for policymakers, for education leaders to do away with them. Motivated parents, satisfied parents, they don't tend to, to go quietly when they love their school. And so one thing that I think is actually going to be defining not just charters, but the education politics landscape for, for a while now, is that we've, I think, come to the end of the old panic we had built out of nation at risk, uh, you know, since the early 80s around this, this panic that our schools weren't working. 
So that gave us a 20 or 30 year window of really hard pushes on trying to improve standards and advance more equitable opportunities in education and, and et cetera. But as Scott says, accountability is on the wane now. The thing is, it's not that the status quo of education today has satisfied our empirical need. It's not like the achievement and opportunity gaps that prompted that panic in the first place have gone away. And so what that means is this cycle is going to end eventually, where there'll be another one of these wake-up call shocks that, that gets, it jolts the country back into a more intentional, focused panic about how to make schools fairer and make public education fairer for all kids in the country and how to raise achievement overall. So I think that's why charters are going to be okay in the long run, is that as long as they continue to perform, they'll have another window of opportunity. There'll be some other big federal report. There'll be some other striking rethinking of how public education operates that's going to drive an opportunity for more reform again. Well, thanks, fellas. And in 20 years, we'll bring you back and uh, see if you were right. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Thanks for coming on the report. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, and special thanks to our guests, Connor Williams and Scott Pearson. I want to thank our producers that make this podcast possible. That's Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. As always, if you've got comments, questions, or topics and suggestions, send them to us at ed dot podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Mountain.